Today's reading is Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 29. It can be found on page 1076 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promise of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was put in charge of us until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The word of the Lord. I invite you to pray with me. Our God of grace, as we listen to these words, we hear them with different frames of reference. Maybe ours is a, a, a sorrowful one. Maybe ours is a scared frame of reference. Maybe ours is uh, a joyful one. We've got gr- gratitude in our hearts. Perhaps even it feels like you are real and you have answered prayers. We hear these words from from hearts that maybe just have doubts, have lots of questions. Intellectual questions invade and seem to block out the possibility sometimes to trust or have faith or to see you clearly. 
we come sometimes just confused, just sometimes depressed. From all these different places, um, the truth is we may present ourselves well, but we are more of a mess than we care to admit. We sit here, every single one of us is in need of your grace. All of us look at our lives and we struggle um, to make an argument sometimes to ourselves and sometimes to the world that, that we're okay, that we're worthy, that we are something. But the truth is, we see a lot of evidence the other way. The good news of the Christian faith that we come for, maybe we don't even realize that's what we're coming for today, but it is, that we come for is the message that even though we're a broken mess, even though that we, we can't put ourselves together in a way that's worthy, you have, you've done it for us. We are more of a mess than we care to admit, but we are more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever imagined. And when your love begins to invade our mess is when the transformation begins. Would you begin that now? mysteriously through your Holy Spirit as we ponder these words of grace from your scriptures. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Yeah, so last week we had a question in the worship guide and, it, and it's the question of the week. And you can always fill that out and you might become famous if, you know, with your answer the following week. So here's the famous answers. The question was, uh, how do you know if a relationship is on solid footing? And some of the answers go like this. You, when you slip on ice and they try to catch you, if they don't, you have something to talk about. <laughs> when you screw up and you can still be friends. Another one, in relationship there needs to be trust, time, commitment. And then lastly, if your commitment to the relationship is stronger than your commitment to yourself. That's how you know you're on solid footing. Um, we, we ask that question because uh, the book of Galatians that we've been working through, and we have one more week after this, is all about how people can know that their relationship with God is on solid footing. And that seems to be a, a good simplified way to describe the whole drama of this very intense letter a letter that, that has the Apostle Paul who writes these lovely letters to these Christians often full of gratitude and, and lovely words thanking them for what he sees in them and God's work in them. And in this letter he says, you foolish Galatians. He skips the Thanksgiving section at the beginning and he gets to even a place because in this letter they had been, one of the issues is circumcision. Some of the people who have come in to teach the Galatians contrary to Paul have been suggesting that everybody needs to get circumcised to be a true Christian. And, uh, of course, Paul is against this, and we'll get into that, and we have gotten into that. But he says at one point, I wish these agitators would go the whole way and castrate themselves. It gives you a sense of this lovely piece of the Bible that we're dealing with today. But, and many of, this, many of the issues in here are actually kind of confusing, especially the stuff we're looking at today. Um, one writer who at one time was an, a, a British intellectual atheist, and then he, uh, I think it was in 2009, um, he had this conversion back to faith, but at one point in his pre-faith days, he had written this, this kind of complex commentary on uh, the book of Galatians and on what was going on in it and on the Apostle Paul, and he said in very stark terms, there is no way for anyone to make sense of what Paul is talking about in this book. <laughs> 
And I, I was going to bring the actual quote along, but it's not much different than that. I, I forgot to bring the quote, but it's basically just... No one can make sense of what Paul's saying. And there is a sense of there's such contrary things going on in here. And some of it, as we have today, gets into some, some very technical um, argumentation to support some of the generalities that Paul has been talking about and that we've been addressing. And one person uh, that I know talked about this part of the book of Galatians as if you're a downhill skier. He said, this is like um, double black diamonds with moguls. If that means anything to you as a downhill skier. And in other words, just the most tricky course to navigate possible. It's kind of what we're dealing with today. And in fact, we don't have enough time to go to a level that really we could. And so rather than getting caught in the thicket in the underbrush today, we'll be skimming a little bit through the treetops of Galatians chapter 3. The Galatian dilemma, the issue of this book is that the Apostle Paul who began this community around the idea of you are good with God because of what Jesus has done on your behalf. And this caused a, a communities throughout the region of Galatia to begin, Christian communities, as Paul went through with this new message. Now he finds out that others have come in after him, a group that he had dealt with in many phases. We read about them in other places of Scripture as well, these people that he summarizes with the name Judaizers. Or another place they're called the circumcision, circumcision group. Say that ten times fast. The circumcision group. And they've come in to say, well, Jesus, yes, of course. Jesus, of course. But we need, along with Jesus, some of these Jewish identity markers. They basically were making an ar- argument not to throw out the baby with the bathwater when you move into the Christian faith, and that all these Gentile converts really weren't going to know they're truly acceptable with God until they had purified themselves, taken on these identity markers such as Sabbath observance, holy days, kosher laws, and circumcision, and other parts of the ceremonial sections of the Old Testament laws in the Bible. So this was their, their argument, in a sense, what they were saying. A good way to summarize it is to say they were saying Jesus is, is essential, but he is not sufficient. And so what they were doing was uh, Jesus plus. We've been talking about how Paul's argument is that um, that kind of addition is actually subtraction. Jesus plus anything is actually less than what you started with. And he says in the passage we dealt with last week that you are setting aside the grace of God when you do this. So this is Paul's argument. You you do not pursue the Christian faith by obeying in order to find yourself acceptable. You are found acceptable in order to enter into a joyful pursuit of obedience, a joyful, delightful journey of finding out new ways to obey. So in other words, what was happening in Galatia was a reversal of the gospel. And that's very much how this letter starts out when, when Paul talks about them polluting the gospel. Basically means reversing. So now, the practical outcome of this theological doctrine switch that's happened is the, Galatian, the real Galatian problem on the ground is that community is disintegrating. The healthy community that had happened in the Galatian churches was beginning to disintegrate and get corrupted by this bad theology. And Paul knows that there's this unique power, this incredible 
um, ability that the Christian faith has. This doctrine of faith in Christ alone has the ability like nothing else in the world to bring disparate groups of people together. Unlikely groups, people that would normally repel, you know, oil and water, avoid each other because of this doctrine of faith in Christ alone, it draws people together. And Christians, Christian communities have the opportunity to be and to have a power that draws together like no other group, no other religion, no other philosophical or religious or spiritual program has the ability to draw opposites together without placing on everyone some kind of superficial Unity, superficial uniform in a sense. The gospel um, says that basically anyone can put on Christ and find acceptance without converting to an entrance, entrance list of moral and cultural codes. That's another reason why the book of Galatians is really tough for us because you have to check yourself. You have to reevaluate and say, is for me, this Christian faith, primarily some set of moral and cultural codes? Is that, when I'm, is that my allegiance? Because if it is, um, Paul would say, it's no gospel at all. Makes Galatians a very difficult book, a, a personal book, a book that you always need to apply afresh to yourself, Paul's disturbed because he has to apply this issue to a community at whole, as a whole. Um, so when you consider this aspect of, of the drawing together of the gospel, what the gospel pulls people who are opposites together, you can see the great danger, the great devastating potential now of, of Paul realizing that they've reversed this doctrine, that these Judaizers have come in and the instant that they do, the instant that this kind of creeps in, that we have to kind of measure, we have to have some way of knowing who's really, you know, the best of the best, who's really on the in here, who's really serious about things. We have to have some external list. As soon as that happens, the power and the vitality begins to drain out. And so... Um, it becomes important to keep the gospel at the center as, as, so that the community has this drawing together power so that community doesn't become just another cookie cutter thing like anybody else can, can create, any other system can create. In, in chapter, 20, uh, chapter 3, verse 26, he says, So in Christ you are all children of God through faith. In Christ you are all children of God through faith. And that really is the sense that um, Paul is trying to emphasize, the end point, in effect, in effect, of the doctrine of justification through faith alone. And this is what he says. Suddenly we are free with God like a child is free with a parent. We are not involved in stiff, formal protocols in relation to God. We don't have to be afraid lest we put our foot in our mouth or embarrass ourselves or get sent out of the room because we didn't use the right title. We can address God as freely as we address our parents. It is the kind of freedom that combines intimacy with reverence. We're still aware of the majesty and awesome glory of God. We do not try to reduce God to a level of coziness where we can manipulate him. The intimacy is a freedom to share ourselves, to express ourselves fearlessly in God's presence 
We are free to be spontaneous, personal, and uninhibited. Faith is not a formal relationship hedged in with elaborate courtesies. It is a family relationship, intimate and free. Now, why do I read that quote? Not only is it a good quote, but it also, if you think about, okay, you might have that sense of, of, of your relationship with God by yourself, but what happens when people gather together and they all have that sense of freedom? What a powerful community. What a welcoming community. And that's exactly, that's exactly what, the, what Paul is seeing is slipping away with the Galatian community. So he gets into chapter 3. And all of this really just by way of setting, up, setting this up. We get to chapter 3 and it becomes a very technical, tedious argument with a lot of cultural distance from where we are today. Um, and, in, and in many ways I'm going to avoid, uh, avoid most of the technical parts that we could dive into here. Some of them confusing uh, even to me with my limited amount of time to study this passage this week and in the weeks prior. Um, and one in which when we read it, it doesn't it almost have the sense of it, it leaves more questions than answers as, uh, as some of the, if you were paying close attention during the reading. Let's just look at three things that are found in here. First, that the gospel, this is one of the points, that's a, a technical point that's important to understanding the gospel. The gospel is original the law is secondary. Let's just, let's just consider that a second. As we look at verse 15, what I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. Paul's making an argument about the age of the gospel versus the law. And that he's showing that the law is a relative newcomer on the scene. And what he's doing here, you might notice the switch earlier on, there was a lot of talk about the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. And here, as he gets into this technical Old Testament Jewish scriptures argument, he switches his lingo and begins to talk about the gospel as the covenant and as the promise. So that's just a technical switch he has made. But every time you see the word covenant or promise in here, that's the same as when he's using the word gospel. And so he makes this argument um, part of a forceful point to even use that Old Testament language to show that the gospel was present before this law that, has, that is getting emphasized by these Judaizers. The Judaizers have made their point to the Galatians. And it's probably gone something along the lines of this. Look, this Jesus is not some new thing. He's a continuation of the story that's gone before. This isn't two stories. And we must be careful not to break from the earlier story and create a rift and call this two things. This is one God, one story. They have made that point, and they have, their, their kind of climax of that is to say, and so we must continue to follow the purity codes from before. Now, the Apostle Paul makes pretty much the same argument, and he's saying, yes, this is one story, one story, a continuation. Jesus continues what has gone before. We must not make a break. And yet, let's consider the fact, where does the gospel begin? And where does the law begin? What is more original and primary to this one story? Turns out he points all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. And he calls that, in, elsewhere in this letter, the gospel given beforehand or the gospel in advance. So already with Abram, we have the gospel. 
And 430 years later, he says, then the law comes along. The gospel is primary. It's in, you know, so, so, okay, so this may feel very technical, but it's going to affect, if you're going to be on a journey of getting to know Jesus more, getting to know the Christian faith more, you're going to have a lot of interaction with Scripture, a lot of interaction with the Old Testament. And one of the most common things you'll run into that you'll hear people say that maybe you have said is, um, you know, the Old Testament was this way and the New Testament is this way. The Old Testament was all about this, you know, harmful religion and there's violence in there and then Jesus comes along and it's, and it's peace and it's love and it's new teachings and Jesus is kind of the new thing and that's where I anchor myself. And, the, and Paul would argue with that and say, oh, that diminishes the story, that diminishes God and God's work all along. And so you know, the proper way to look at it is that, you know, where does God's grace begin? It's, it's, it's almost like you can't say when it begins. In the second century, the great church father Irenaeus, a great theologian and thinker and an early arguer with those who, uh, who argued against the Christian faith, he's someone who pointed out that even in, in the fall, in chapter 3, the fall of Adam and Eve, when God comes in and, and, and notices and begins to speak kind of truth into now what's going to happen, and amidst these curses, they're called, there is grace. Irenaeus points out that when he says that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the snake, that already there we have a link to the eventual climax of God's gracious story in Jesus Christ. Others have pointed out that in that same sequence, you have God sewing together appropriate coverings out of animal skins, which involved a sacrifice. And here you have some of the pieces of the grace foreshadowed that was going to come through Jesus, that a sacrifice would be involved, that it would involve covering you instead of you being able to somehow cover yourself up. The coverings of Adam and Eve, you know, you know the classic fig leaves, right? They don't, it's kind of peekaboo. It doesn't do a very good job, right? And that's the sense spiritually. Our coverings don't do a very good job. Where does grace begin? In the Bible, right? Oh, it starts with Jesus. No. You can't, you almost, as soon as God is there, grace is ready to land on the scene when needed. That's the sense you get from this story. And that's the sense Paul is saying. And it's a helpful, it's a helpful point to make, you know, as he considers the community damage that is happening because of this prioritization of the law, a relative newcomer. And the second point then is just how he shows that the law is inferior Okay, just a small variation on the first point. First of all, the gospel is original, the law is secondary. But secondly, the law is inferior. And you see in verse um, 23 and 25 of chapter 3, uh, in this section, he's, he's calling the law something that operates like a custodian or like a supervisor of a child that's not yet fully grown. And yet when that child comes of age, then the au pair so to speak, right, like nanny or au pair or caregiver is now put aside. He even mentions in chapter 4, he talks about that phase as a sort of enslavement as opposed to the freedom that the child now has once grown up. This is, what, this is, this is his way of describing the story of God and the purpose and the function of the law. To go backwards is to settle for something extraordinarily inferior and it makes absolutely no sense in the bigger story of God. It's, to, it's to, be, to choose enslavement rather than freedom. To go and to choose the law. And to bring it back in as an identity marker to find acceptance with God. 
One of the commentators on Galatians is Scott McKnight, a well-known American theologian and teacher, a biblical scholar, and he says he compares this uh, analogy to a modern-day difference between using an old typewriter and using a computer. He says, when typing on a computer, we realize that we are still using the old manual typewriter's technology. Further, we realize that the computer far transcends the typewriter. Everything that a typewriter wanted to be and more is now found in a computer. This compares to the law. Everything the law wanted to be when it was young, as revealed to Moses, is found now in Christ and in the life of the Spirit. Thus, when a Christian lives in the Spirit and under Christ, that Christian is not living contrary to the law, but is living in transcendence of the law. It is for this very reason that life lived primarily under the law is wrong. And then he says this, he says, when the computer age arrived, we put our manual typewriters uh, aside because they belong to a former era. So dramatic, right? Paul's critique of the Judaizers is that they are typing on manual typewriters after the computer's are on the desk. He says every, and this is, this is insightful for what this passage is about, every maneuver on a computer is the final hope of the manual typewriter. And that, but that's exactly Paul's point here in, um, in the law. Everything about the law is driving towards Christ. And that means that every attempt um, to split the law from that role immediately, instantaneously diminishes it. So the law, Paul says, is inferior. Again, these are just, in a sense, tedious technical points that Paul's making. Let's move on to number three and close. The gospel enables new community. We see this, I mean, just these soaring words of verse 28. I'm so thankful for these words. They're deeply meaningful, even if they're not, even if you don't get the context, but with the context, they come off the page even more. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, Neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Have you pondered how the gospel enables new community? This is such a soaring picture of what community can be, and, and that, that this kind of... Um, no division, no separations, no dividing walls erected and put up, that that would be the ethos of the Christian community. And so you look and you say, is my life including unlikely friends because of my connection to Jesus? That's where this all comes down for the Galatian people. In your life, as you look at your relationships, does it include unlikely friends that you find yourself moving towards, not because a preacher told you to or because you read a book about it, but because you know God in a way that you have experienced a welcome that must now move out in welcome of others. A way in which the gospel has um, broken down superficial codes and moral barriers between you and God, so much so that it has convinced you that is the way things really and truly work best. And you, with the eagerness to break down dividing walls and separations between you and others, have begun to do the same. Has that started to happen? Or like the Galatians, are you doing what we so often do? I, you know, I say this with no sense of snobbery or like I'm ahead of the ball on this. Like we all tend to do is to create a hierarchy 
of condescension or a ladder that we're climbing that allows us then or maybe even forces us without us even realizing, forces us to trample on others on the way up. Are you excluding on your route towards purity? That is what the Judaizers are doing. And Paul makes the case basically with this letter that it's one or the other. You are either grabbing hold of this, what really is a doctrine of justification with God through faith alone, not through purity codes and moral, moral standards. Justification with God through faith alone. You either have that, and it flows out into diverse people drawing together with a unique and unusual power, or you have some way in which you're trying to justify your existence, and you must, therefore, apply those standards with ripple effects in your life moving outward. And you must begin to set dividing walls between you and others. Well, which one is more indicative of your life? The second, of course, Paul's point is that is a catastrophe for community. It's a catastrophe. And the gospel is, the gospel, those living in the gospel create a realm in which they are putting away their soiled righteousness and their polluted religion because they have found the only route to God is through faith in Christ alone. And it unites unlikely people as a result. I'll just close with this. Miroslav Volf um, is a German theologian philosopher. I think he might still be alive. Um, looking for Dan Nelson. He would know. <laughs> is he still alive, Dan? Miroslav Volf, do you know? I think he is, yeah. Old guy. He's been around a long time. He tells us, this is an old story that he tells of walking um, through an urban neighborhood um, that you know, had all kinds of blight and broken down community. And his friend is walking along, a friend who's, who's in that community, is walking him along and talking about things. And the friend says, you know what this community is missing? This is a community that's missing the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And Miroslav Volz, what are you talking about? And as he sat, so he tells the story that as he sat with it and thought about it, days later he stewed on it and he realized that this, this friend of his was exactly right. And here's what he says. He says, imagine that you have no job, no money. You live cut off from the rest of society in a, rule, in a world ruled by poverty and violence. Your skin is the wrong color and you have no hope that any of this will change. Around you is a society governed by the iron law of achievement. Its gilded goods are flaunted before your eyes on the TV screens. And in a thousand ways, society tells you every day that you are worthless because you have no achievement. You are a failure, and you know that you will continue to be a failure because there is no way to achieve tomorrow what you have not managed to achieve today. Your dignity is shattered and your soul is enveloped in the darkness of despair. But the gospel tells you that you are not defined by outside forces. tells you that you count. Even more, that you are loved unconditionally and infinitely, irrespective of anything you have achieved or failed to achieve. Imagine now this gospel not simply proclaimed but embodied in community. Justified by sheer grace, it seeks to justify by grace those declared unjust by society's implacable law of achievement. Let me read that again. 
A community justified by sheer grace seeks to justify by grace those declared unjust by a society's implacable law of achievement. Imagine, therefore, this community determined to infuse the wider culture along with its political and economic institutions with the message that, seeks, that it seeks to embody and proclaim. He says, this is justification by grace, proclaimed and practiced. A dead, a dead doctrine? Hardly. Let us pray. God, we pray that your grace, whether something new to us or something old hat, may make itself plain to our hearts. We pray that your Holy Spirit does this work. A special prayer today, God, for our community to be a place which is a a reflection of this doctrine of justification by faith or by grace, however it's worded, that it would be a place that instinctively, inherently accepts and draws towards people who are different, different than us, different than the people we normally hang out with, and that there would be an acceptance and an obvious fit for people of all kinds of walks of life right here at City Life Church, all because your grace is alive and active through your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.